I believe that life is a quest, and we're all heroes on a journey of self-discovery. I'm on a mission to explore my potential, optimize my mind, body, and lifestyle, and master the game of life. Join me as I seek out some of the best guides and mentors on the planet, and unpack their brains for the magical weapons and roadmaps needed to help you reach your potential. My name is Ollie Herman Taylor, and I am a torchbearer. So, Matt Shaw. Hi, Ollie. So, I'm here having a coffee, just going to paint a little picture for you. Uh, I'm in Eastbourne. Uh, I'm in a beautiful flat with Matt, Matt's flat. Uh, the sun's shining through the window, and we're having a, a really nice coffee. What What is this coffee, Matt? It uh, has been coffee, and the name is something like Hooligan Blend or something. It's um, chocolatey, grape, very nice, strong. And I've got a metal, like a stainless steel cup, so it's uh, it's very, very, very nice. So I'm going to ask you, what gets you out of bed in the morning, Matt? Like, what makes you feel fired up and want to kind of attack the day? For me, it's just about getting out each day and trying to take myself forward in whatever way I can, um, whether that's through my own personal development or helping other people to develop either their fitness as I'm a personal trainer or mental aspects about themselves. But it's also just seeing every day as a new opportunity to experience new things, to connect with new people, and to open the box really on future potential and adventure. Adventure, that's something I definitely want to come back to a bit later on because uh, that's one of the kind of words I associate with you from, from watching you on social media and kind of, uh, you know, seeing part of your life that you share. Yes. Adventure is definitely something that I uh, associate with you. I think I first came across you probably about five or six years ago. We were trying to work out when yeah. <laughs> before we started recording. Uh, but it was basically on uh, my Strong First kettlebell certification. So it's the first kind of exposure I had to Strong First as a brand and as a kind of training methodology. Uh, and I was working as a personal trainer at the time. And I remember being, I think it was in Milton Keynes or somewhere near Milton Keynes. Yeah. Anyway, there were about 80 people, I want to say, on the course. And I remember being in a big kind of sports hall, uh, big sports centre. And it was quite quite brutal compared to what I'd done before. So it was three days of lots of kettlebell stuff. Uh, and I remember my hands being kind of ripped up. But I've got two memories that really, really stick out from that weekend. The first one is doing my snatch test literally just scraping through by I think I had two seconds to spare and I remember you and James Brees and a few other people were there kind of uh, shouting uh, and encouraging me on yeah the, the other thing that really really sticks in my mind I think a massive high from that weekend was the grad workout and basically we finished the weekend it was like three days of intensity yes and then Dan John taking us through the grad workout and Fabio playing like ACDC really really loud and we were just yeah. doing we're just doing rounds and rounds and everyone was battered and in pieces but they were like ecstatic and, and the reason I mentioned strong first is because a definition I came across was like a quiet professional people being quiet professionals mm. and that very much makes me think of you you seem to kind of embody you know being a quiet professional in the health fitness strength world yeah thank you I think which is quite rare because a lot of people shout and hype things up. Yeah. So basically, what, what's your story? What's your background and what got you into health and fitness, personal training, and ultimately into, you know, that, that room five years ago? As a um, well, I've always been involved in uh, fitness because I've been a competitive athlete as a child. Um, so I started off as a swimmer and did that right the way through until I was 16. Um, then I had a little bit of time uh, playing rugby 
Um, then it became uh, mountain biking, road cycling, which I competed at at um, county level and national level. And so I always had felt like I wanted to be a personal trainer um, from probably the time I left sixth form. And I went away to university and I did sports science uh, degree at Chichester. And um, I just remember feeling like I wasn't in the right time and space. So when I finished university, I went back to crew, and this was 1996. Personal training back then was not really uh, a, a huge thing. And um, it just never really felt like the right time, or I just didn't feel like I could make something of it. It felt like such a luxury thing, which I think was probably a reflection of my mindset back then anyway. Yeah. But um, I, I worked as a gym instructor. Um, I got trained as a gym instructor once I qualified um, straight after university. Became a duty manager in leisure, which was something I said I'd never do and ended up doing. Um, and did that for a good few years before I moved down south, uh, where I worked at Brighton University, duty manager, and then got a job for a year managing back at Chichester University, and I was managing their sports centre. So I'd gone full, full cycle from being a student to then being a manager. I did that for 12 months, and um, the travel over every day, it was just a 50-mile drive every day along a, t a terrible road, just became too much. And I fancied a change and a break, so I, I got into um, IT, and we were working, and I was working on a... Um, um, delivering training for a software package that I'd had installed at two of the largest places I'd worked at as a computerised booking system. Anyway, I did that for five years, um, both in terms of customer support and training people how to use that. And, um, and that was a, a really great process because I was a very different man back then to what I am now. I very much lacked confidence, wouldn't be able to stand up in front of a group of people and talk. And the nature of that job meant I had to get up in front of people and do that. And so at the time it felt like it was torture, but it actually gave me a massive uh, boost in terms of then moving ahead because once I'd been in that line of work for uh, five years, it was towards the end, I just realized that the last thing I wanted to be doing was working for somebody else for the rest of my life. And I um, was married at the time and we were away on honeymoon and I just, talked to my then wife and said I just want to chase my dream of becoming a personal trainer. So I took myself off and re-qualified once we got back from honeymoon, reset various qualifications to make sure that they were all current, set my own website up and, um, and within 12 months had made the transition from being full-time employed to full-time self-employed, completely smooth transition, um, had a, a, a bag full of clients, started getting classes off the ground and then the rest is history from there. That was uh, almost 12 years ago now. And with that transition, that's really interesting because um, you didn't make the leap. You didn't do what a lot of people, I think, do. And that's kind of like pull the plug on one thing and then just go out and go, oh, shit, how am I going to get clients? Yeah. What, what now? You kind of sounds like you transitioned in. Well, I was, I was in a fortunate position because uh, I was very good at my job in the IT uh, company and I knew that they would want to keep me. Um, so I offered to them to commit to them for six months if they allowed me to cut my hours down. At the same time, one of my clients who I was working with at the time had given me the advice of just save up two months of salary and then make the, well she said three months of salary actually, then make the, make the, make the jump. Um, anyway, within, once I'd saved two months of salary, things were going so well that um, I decided to make the break. So I managed to cut my hours down 
to a level whereby it would allow me to continue to develop my business to a, a bigger degree. And then once I got to a point where I got enough people, I just made the jump. And I understood that if I kept doing the two jobs for too long, it would ultimately keep me too busy and keep my life too full. And by that, I mean that I'm a big believer that you have to have space in order to allow new things in. And if your life is so full of stuff that you haven't got any energetic space for anything new to come in, it simply won't happen. And so there was very much a shedding of the of the old work and having a, a moment of, you know, maybe a four week period whereby that kind of shit, am I gonna be able to earn enough money for next month? But then the leads started flooding in because my website placed well for local searches and there was way less competition back then in Eastbourne than what there is now. And so it was very easy for me to pick up people um, with the message that I was putting out there in relation to how I train people and how I work. And as well as kind of creating the space to let something new in, it sounds like you put a little bit of pressure on yourself uh, for a yeah. four-week period and you're like, right, this is it. There's a, you, you obviously came to a point where you had to cross the threshold yeah. and, and end one thing and leap into the new thing. Yeah. Do you find, I didn't realise you had the sort of competitive athletic background yeah, yeah. Uh, to the degree that you've had. Mm. Do you find that like having been a competitive athlete did that sort of help in that transition in the fact that you put a bit of pressure on yourself and you respond well to it? Yeah, or... I mean, I've always I've always been quite into, um, well, I say always, I had a series of events that led me to really look at mindset techniques. And so a lot of stuff I picked up originally from self-help books about positive thinking, being able to watch your own thoughts. And so when I was setting up my own business, I very much had the mindset of this cannot fail. If I'm, if I'm going to make a go of this, I have to make it work. I have to find a way of making it work. It, it's not going to fail. And that was my mindset. I didn't even entertain the idea of it failing. It was kind of like burn, burn your bridges or burn the boats approach. Like yeah, yeah, it. yeah. But it was, it was moreover, it was this unshakable belief that I knew I could make it work. And this is really interesting to me because I want to dig into this soon. But what, what were you reading? So self-help books, personal development books. What were you reading? Who were you studying? And... What lessons can you, are there any lessons that stand out that you can offer to someone who might be listening who's in a similar space? Maybe they're not that confident, maybe they're making a fresh start in some way and they need to kind of forge that resilience of mind, that slightly unshakable belief. Yeah, I mean for me, uh, the the uh, the catalyst for for it all was going through a period of suicidal depression which led me to really uh, look at myself and how I'd been thinking about myself for most of my life. And um, through a period of medication, which I absolutely hated, it forced me to look at myself even more closely. At the time, I worked for a, with a counsellor for a little while and had 10 sessions. And they were very good because they helped me to start to see things from a different perspective. Then I started to read around the subject. And, and one of the books is not even considered that much to be a self-help book, although it kind of is. It was The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. And it was a story about a lad who um, met this guy at a, at a petrol station and he was almost like a bit, a bit of a Mr. Miyagi type character from the Karate Kid. And he just helped uh, Danny to learn all of these different lessons about the pitfalls of the mind and how it can lie to us and all of our false ideas and beliefs about the things that we've picked up and the things that we're told on, you know, who we are and how we should be. And reading that really connected with me because it felt like the book was about me and so it connected with me on a deep level and it allowed me to start to realize my own limiting behaviors that were relatively superficial and easy to spot and then 
ultimately choose to think in a different way um, and to act in a different way and to almost shed the, the kind of limiting beliefs that I'd got and replace them with something far more positive and more powerful. I haven't read that book and I'm going to put it in the show notes. I'll put any links to any books yeah. and recommendations in the show notes and I'm going to order a copy uh, basically as soon as we finish mm. recording. In a business I've been involved in for a year and a half. Sorry, Ollie, just going back to that. So another another great one was um, was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which is a very well-known book, um, and a, a number of uh, books by Osho. So it's if it wasn't one book, it's been a number of books. Very rarely do I finish a book. I tend to glean what I need out of it, and then you kind of know when you've had enough. So you read for insight rather than information. This Correct. is something I came across a while ago. Yeah. You're reading for that spark to yeah. give you what you need for the day and then you can move on yeah. rather than reading cover to cover. Yeah. So, I mean, Osho would definitely come back to Osho because yeah, yeah. he's been a huge influence on my life. Uh, when I was in a very dark time in my life in particular, there's an audio book mm. called Meditations on Sufism. or Sufism. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to it in a second. But what I was going to say about the way of the peaceful warrior is that in the business I've been involved in, we, we, we look at the hero's journey and we base mm. a lot of messaging and uh, kind of brand communication for some of the businesses we work with on Joseph Campbell's classic hero's journey. Mm. And that book really triggered that for me. It sounds like this guy who meets the Mr. Miyagi type character. Yeah, and yeah. I think life is life really is a journey. And if you look at the classic sort of structure of the monomyth of, of Joseph Campbell, you can really, I, I personally I found it very kind of liberating because it shows that um, it's not meant to be all kind of roses and kind mm. of, you know, sunshine and kittens all of the time, that people do get stuck, people do hit dark places. So The Power of Now, I've definitely read. Really, really good book. We'll link to that as well. Yeah. Um, what got you? Sounds like you were in a very dark place then for a mm. while. And you, you mentioned sort of suicidal yeah, yeah. depression. Yeah. So if you don't mind me asking, how did you get to that point in your life? Because you know, you sound like you had a good career. Sound yeah. like you had a good competitive athletic career. You kind of knew what you wanted to do. Yeah. It ultimately, uh, Ollie, it was nearly all of my life I'd had this um, feeling of just not being good enough. So pretty much worthless. Um, when I was at my lowest, I just felt I got nothing to offer anybody who would be interested in me. You know, in terms of, you know, a partner or a future partner. I didn't have any confidence. I couldn't go out and, and talk to women. Um, back then, I remember I couldn't even go and sit in a coffee shop on my own for fear of wondering what people were thinking about this guy sat on his own. He's got no mates. You know, he's ugly. All of those things. And I remember. Um, hating my face and thinking well I can change the way my body looks uh, and that's going to be good enough and so one of the things that I, I did do for a while was hammered myself with bodybuilding in order to try and do that and it was really just a massive uh, process of feeling not good enough and self-loathing and um, and I believe that the depression came about because fundamentally I've been rejecting myself for all of those years, for the 30 odd years that I've been doing that. And, um, you know, you can't, your body and mind can't re remain in a healthy state when you've been essentially rejecting the, the very person who you are for that length of time. And so that was the catalyst really for me to start to really look at how I felt about me. And now I look back on that period and think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it allowed me to get to where I am now. Uh, and to also understand myself better. And now since then, I never have been depressed like that since. Um, sure, I have blue days, but they're never the same as that unbearable despair that I used to feel whereby I'm, I felt paralyzed on a, on a regular basis and unable to move and not able to do anything. 
what was the one thing if if there was one thing and I know it's more complex than this because it sounds like you I think a lot of men I think a lot of men who get into their mid-30s and into their 40s mid-40s actually struggle with depression and darkness and kind of feeling very trapped in life Mm. despite maybe having a wonderful family despite having a good business despite having financial success I think that there's something about modern life that kind of erodes the core of of being a man Mm. Uh, and I know there's a kind of well there has been a growing kind of men's movement and you know that whole alpha kind of philosophy which I find interesting but also switches me off a little bit because it's like you know, to be a man, you just have to get full sleeve tattoos and a beard and say yeah, fuck yeah. a lot. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that's quite the whole picture. But was there a pivotal moment? Was there one glimmer of hope that took you from the bottom of that deep, dark pit and made you realise that actually it, it was the turning point? No, there was there was not one thing that just happened. It was just a complete process over time. And it wasn't even a short period of time. It was, you know, this is over several years of you know self-reflection doing the doing the work and or doing the work to the best of the knowledge that I had at the time because ultimately the skills that I learned then served me until they stopped serving me um, and then I had to dig deeper within my psyche to reveal the limiting factors that I hadn't even been aware of and patterns of behavior so I was able to deal with the superficial stuff the negative self-talk that's easy to deal with Below that on the subconscious was where I had to really learn how to do the digging. Um, and I did that through uh, through the help of uh, a really wonderful coach. Okay. And what sort of modality did the coach use? That was like CBT or some kind of coach? No, just, talk, just talking therapy. But um, I mean, I wouldn't even... I mean, therapy. Is it even therapy? It's just about... Uh, she helped me to really identify the places which I trip over myself and hold myself up and... On the surface, you can act and, and behave in a particular way and think that that's the real truth of the matter. But actually, underneath that, you've got the pain that's causing the behaviour to uh, emerge. And so, therefore, it's the process I learned was instead of trying to move away from the pain and tell myself I wasn't thinking it, was now the process is one about actually really sitting with it and feeling it and not trying to do anything with it other than just to sit with it and be okay with it. And what I found is over the time that allowed me to dissolve a lot of the um, the limitations and and uh, wounding I'd also ultimately picked up, and um, in moving to a place of you know now I enjoy great the greatest level of freedom in my life I've ever had. I'm achieving things I've never th- even thought I could possibly achieve, and it's because I've done this deeper inner work of shifting the inside. So my external experience is one that reflects my internal. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, like your external world reflects your internal world, which really is your thinking, your mindset, beliefs, and kind of your ideological framework, which personally I'm kind of fascinated by. I mean, you have a successful business, you look like you go on amazing adventures, which we'll come back to. You know, you're strong, you're fit, you're healthy, you look like you love your training. And what would you say to a guy who is in that place, who's in that very bottom of that pit, that kind of like possibly having suicidal thoughts in a very, very dark place? What would you say is the best course of action, just personal kind of, you know, from having the experience of it to help to help them kind of see a way forwards and start to dig themselves out? Um, I, think the, I think my advice would be to ultimately see it as a process. And it's something that, even though it's really painful, it offers a great opportunity for learning because the pain is there because of resistance and the pain is there because of ultimately not being able to live in a way in which 
um, your kind of heart desires because you think you can't have it or you can't achieve it or the relationships you've got in your life are not the ones that you would ultimately like um, to have if, if you're truth, you know, truthfully honest with yourself. But um, I think really is just go out and search for help. You know, my first portal call was, you know, one day when I wanted to go and get run over on my bike, I just thought I'm going to go and take myself to the doctors and need help. And that's which, what I did. Which is a difficult thing to do. I think it's a, I think there's a there's a sort of masculine ego thing perhaps around this. I don't know. But it's I think it's difficult for people to go out and ask for help. To admit that there's yeah, a problem. It, it in the can be. Place. It can be. But then the other option is you're gonna feel miserable for the rest of your life or worse. And so for me, I took myself to the doctor, got on medication, very quickly that showed me it wasn't gonna work, uh, or it didn't work in the way in which I wanted to. And so that just led me on a path of discovery then of, of seeking out and working with people who I felt connection with and resonated with. And ultimately those people helped me to unravel myself into the guys I am now, which is, uh, you know, a vastly different human being than I was, you know, 20 years ago when I was going through this. So you had a period of bodybuilding where you hit the weights hard and you were yeah. like, you were trying to, you know, I guess bulk up to make yourself more confident and feel more attractive. Yeah. Did you dabble with any drugs, like performance enhancing drugs? Yeah. So for a couple of years, back then you could get pro hormones, which were, I used to send, buy them in from the States. You could buy them off various websites, designer pro hormones. You take a capsule, converts to a, a um, hormone within the body your target hormone and helps you gain muscle so I did that for a couple of years and that was all quite good and um, you know you're juggling side effects all the time um, but eventually what I wanted to do was or what I felt I wanted to do was step on the stage and compete mm. and in order to do that I knew that I needed to take it to the next level so that led me down the route of doing a, um, an actual proper cycle of injectable steroids and testosterone and uh, within a very short space of time, I realized my body hated to be out of balance and had all kinds of side effects. Anyway, I stuck with it for 12 weeks and it was just horrendous. Um, and now I understand, you know, it was one of, the, one of the lessons that really taught me the importance of balance and how powerful hormones are within the body and what a negative effect they can have on the body, but also the mind as well. Um, ultimately ended up in leading to me to have some surgery which um, which is not something that you would ever imagine needing to have done, but uh, that's what ultimately what happened. And so it was um, it was a massive cover up for the worthlessness that I felt, and um, for the lack of confidence that I had. And I was searching ultimately for an external solution to an internal problem. And me trying to build myself up and look ripped and all of that stuff. It just wasn't happening. I mean, I was getting big, but I looked a mess because the the estrogenic estrogenic side effects I had were just massive. Even though I was taking anti estrogen drugs alongside it, it was just my body just rejected it completely. And the reason I ask is because um, I I work with kind of I guess a lot of men, businessmen in their you know mid forties, yeah. and more and more I've been looking at testosterone levels and testing independently with labs their testosterone levels and I find quite consistently that a lot of men are very low slope borderline well just under the normal threshold in terms of their total testosterone but also the kind of breakdown of the right. full testosterone panel and I think that this is a pet theory of mine I'm not an expert on this but I am doing more and more and more research I think that kind of low testosterone can feed into this cycle of depression and feeling trapped and 
some of the kind of uh, mental anguish I see people having at the moment. Yeah. So I was just interested to see whether you had experience with testosterone. Yeah. And 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 then whether you tested afterwards and to see what the levels were like. Uh, well, I never did any testing, but I mean, I would I would look at it the other way, Ollie, and say, you know, is the low testosterone levels because of the way the person thinks about themselves? You know, it, it may not necessarily be that low testosterone is causing that thing. Is if that person's been feeling wretched about themselves for years, who's to say that the the reason their testosterone is not is the way it is is because of how they've been thinking. Given that you know thoughts and feelings are such positive, sorry, such powerful mm. elements, I always try and look at things either way and go, is it really that, or could it be something else? A bit like you know Perry Nicholson's chatted about how sitting down can negatively affect your testosterone cortisol ratio well that's just sitting down if you add in some feelings and thoughts about that over a sustained period of time who knows so i think it'd be an interesting thing to look at but i never think it's as rarely cut and dry as it may first seem on paper i think that yeah i think you're absolutely right there's a really good point i hadn't actually thought about it from that angle mm. but I think there's never one thing behind any of yeah. these complex kind of issues. Really interesting. That just reminds me of like Jordan Peterson's book, Twelve Rules for Life. And there's, I can't remember the name of the chapter, but I now it, it struck me it had a big impact on me. I call it like defeated lobster syndrome. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the book or no. listened to podcasts, but basically he talks about kind of um, sometimes a cycle of failure in business life can be a self fulfilling cycle that can affect your serotonin levels in particular and also testosterone and other kind of male hormones and, and you know female hormones in yeah. that case and you can have this kind of uh, as i said earlier a bit of an erosion anyway what did you have for breakfast this morning uh this morning i had a cinnamon and raisin bagel with scrambled egg cherry tomatoes and a uh greens powder drink from new zest nice with black coffee with black coffee yeah do you do you always eat breakfast no nope. Uh, my uh, my approach to nutrition is very uh, relaxed and fluid in so much as I very rarely eat the same stuff more than one day on the go. I very rarely um, follow a particular pattern. Some days I'll intermittent fast, other days I'll have breakfast. Some days I'll eat one meal in a day, other days I'll eat three. Um, I very much go on how my body's feeling, what my activity levels are like, and ultimately what I feel I need from one day to the next. That's really, really interesting, especially the intermittent fasting thing, because I think when people do consistent intermittent fasting, it's not really intermittent. It's so yeah. interesting yeah. if you have it the same every yeah. every day. Uh, I think humans are not designed for linear calories in or exercise or, yeah. or anything in particular. So, have you tried any kind of fad diets though in the past? Have, what, what have you What have you tested um, out? Not really. I mean, you know, when I used to do a lot of bodybuilding, it was all about protein. But in recent, you know, I used to have a thing about. I used to have a bit of a thing about food where it was a bit of an obsessive thing for me in terms of controlling it. But again, that was uh, just ways in which I think um, I used to just manage how I used to feel about myself. But now I'm very much uh, detached from food. Um, and, so, and when I say detached from food, is it's you know I love eating food. I enjoy. I eat, I love eating out with my friends, and I love eating in. And you know I like it takeaways. I enjoy eating healthy. But I don't see it as anything other than something to enjoy from time to time, but also it's just fuel. And so for me, a particular strategy, I just, I've just never really done one. I've never needed one. I just look at the fact that I'm a transient human being from one day to the next, and some days I might fancy eating more kale, the next day I might fancy eating a pizza. I very much know if I've got a craving for a particular food, I'm going to listen to that and probably eat it in so much as 
you know the last one I had it was all I wanted to eat was some broccoli well that's what I'm going to eat because clearly my body's telling me that that's what I fancy or today I felt more hungry because I had a massive training session yesterday and so I fancied having some some breakfast with some eggs and some healthy fats and so on and so forth but that's definitely not typical it's just I ask myself what do I feel like on a given day and then just follow if you pardon the pun my gut feeling on that and so you have a it's kind of a more of intuit, an, an intuitive approach very you know, much based on how your body's feeling yeah. what you feel you need how does that affect your performance so you had a heavy training session yesterday and we'll come yeah. back to what you do in, in a bit yeah but when you've had a tra- heavy training session you know the fact that you you, you know you don't have a kind of a, a fixed nutritional regimen if that makes sense yeah does it affect your energy levels when you're training do you always feel pretty good not really because um when i when i train is i you know i'll train you know fairly hard but very rarely max out for one the second thing is is if i'm doing say for instance a long run i'll make sure i take some fuel in during the long run so that i'm not as depleted afterwards you know, I'm a big believer in. I never really, when I if I feel overtired or overtrained, the first place I look is not nutrition as the reason why. I look at everything else in and around the training. So, have I trained too hard? Have I had enough sleep? Probably not. Um, how are my stress levels? You know, I think those are way bigger factors on our ability to recover than whether I've had a way shake within 20 minutes of finishing my workout or not. So um, you run a, a personal training business. Yeah. Um, can, can you tell us about it? Like, uh, how did you? Well, we know how you started it because you transitioned after your kind of stint in IT. But like, what? Who do you focus on with the business? Uh, how do you run it? Is it indoor training? Is it outdoor? Okay. Uh, so I've always been an outdoor-based trainer, and the reason I chose that route was because I fundamentally believe people spend enough time indoors. Um, at the same time, from a business business perspective, I just didn't want to be paying massive fees to a gym. So I've been working outside for uh, nearly 12 years. In the last two years, I've actually acquired a very small studio space, which I pay very little to actually operate from, and I just use that for if the weather's bad. But for most of the time, it's outdoors. Um, I've, I've been doing, throughout that time, one-to-one personal training uh, and also group classes. The split between the two has varied depending upon how it is I want to operate and the the money that I can generate from either of those two aspects. I also uh, have done and I'm currently doing online personal training. I moved away from that for a little while because with my businesses, my business is very dynamic and fluid and ultimately the most important person in my business is me. And if I'm happy and doing the things that I enjoy, then everything flows from that space. So as my desires and interests change, then so does my business accordingly. But um, in recent years, I've qualified as a mountain leader because I started spending more time in the mountains and felt the benefits of doing that and therefore could see that other people could benefit from me uh, taking them into the mountains and giving them similar experiences to what I've enjoyed. In addition to that, I've also been a, a trainer of trainers and um, I've been a consultant a number of times on helping to put uh, personal training education providers uh, modules together for their courses. So I've done that with an outdoor training module mm-hmm. and also a kettlebell module for a local PT firm. Um, and I also uh, do trainer-trainer uh, work and have assisted, for instance, on Strong First. I also run my own now educational workshops as well including a, a mace workshop and kettlebell workshops as well so that's the kind of scope of my business um, but it's fluid and dynamic and it's always changing from one year to the next what's your driving core value and and you know not everyone thinks about core values but we can think about 
truth as a core value, success, perfection, justice. These are very high level core values. Or it could yeah. just be something like, you know, freedom. I'm picking up freedom, but what, what would you... Th- what drives you in in terms of values and core values? Um, for me, for me, it is freedom is the biggest thing. You know, freedom to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it within my life and have the capacity to do that. But also in helping others to become more free and to become more relaxed around health and fitness and not have to have um, everything so regimented that actually it becomes restrictive. You know, that can be useful when somebody's first learning stuff. But I think ultimately. A more relaxed approach to life is generally what more people need and so freedom is definitely um, something I'm passionate about helping myself to enjoy but also others as well. I think that um, it's quite tough in the health and fitness industry nowadays with social media because not only is a lot of pressure on uh, trainers to be what I call plastic, like the action man and Barbie doll kind of figure and physique, you know, no body hair. I've got loads of body hair. I don't want to wax it or shave it, but lots of people say, oh, you should because you'd look more defined. Um, but, you know, this kind of, this very media-driven physique, if you know, kind of rippling six-packs, big yeah. pecs, very bodybuilding type physique. Uh, and I think it puts a lot of pressure on trainers to sort of look like they conform and fit into a certain way. And if you think about what that does to trainers, for members of the public, for people who are out there trying to get fit and trying to get strong, trying to get healthy, I think it puts a, a lot of pressure on them. So it's really nice to hear that kind of that's not your certainly not what drives you. And I know that from watching your yeah. your content and following you anyway. Uh, and, and I like this kind of definition of freedom that you've you've given. Um, freedom is one of my biggest kind of core values as yeah, well. Yeah. Who, who's your typical client? Like, who is your you're sort of I hate to say the word average but who, who who's your most common client that you have to be honest Ollie I don't have a typical client I, I've tried to go down the, or thought I needed to go down the idea of having a niche and identifying who my ideal client was for me that never worked because my niche is people I've got people who right now who are elite level runners who are wanting to get stronger I've got another elite level runner who has had pain in the body and wants to be free of that Similarly, I've got people who just want to be able to do a 5K without pain and suffer from fibromyalgia. I've got people who've wanted to train for Strong First and Strength Matter certifications. I've got people who want to do mountain mountain marathon races and special forces events. And I've just got people who just want to lose a bit of weight and feel better in their skin or to to learn a skill like the mace. And so I don't have a typical client. I tend to attract a type of age of client, I think, because of my own age. So typically I'll work with my, most people are 35 plus who work with me, but then that could also be because of, you know, what I charge for PT and so on and so forth as well. So my client base is massively varied and diverse. And that's one of the things I love about it is I just know that um, whoever I work with, I can make a difference if they're open to my methods and ideas. And, um, and I just think that's a, a different place to be from what we're told we need to be identifying as you know for our message i think is i've never really gotten on board with the message of just being nothing more than helping people to show up as the best version of themselves and move beyond what they think they're capable of by helping them to understand themselves a bit better i like this idea of not having a niche or a niche as the uh, the americans like to call it but 
you know, you're kind of breaking all of the rules of marketing. Yeah. However, you have a successful training business, which yes. you've run for 12 years. Yeah. You have an online coaching business as well. How do you get clients? Or how do clients find you for the online side in particular? Um, so I'm literally just in the process of launching that. So for me, my strategy with that will just be to show up on social media and put it out there that I'm available to work for remote coaching. Um, I've, I've, I've tried things like paid ads in the past. They never work for me. Um, my marketing strategy over the years has consisted of, I write down in my journal that I would like the opportunity to work with more people and trust that implicitly that my energy is one of receiving that and then within two weeks I get an inquiry or more. And um, people have asked me about my marketing strategy in the past. Of course I show up on social media and share stuff, but it's, it's this, that's nothing more than just showing what we get up to kind of showcasing that oh we have some fun doing this some of my clients have achieved this that and the other um but there's never really a definitive plan of how am i going to get clients i just open myself up to the opportunity to work in a particular way so you you get yourself in a position where you you're open to receiving yeah sounds kind of like law of attraction-y kind of stuff kind of, it kind of is um it's, it's one of those whereby, you know, in the past I used to focus on I need to earn X amount of money. This is what I need to pull in to live this kind of lifestyle. And it never worked for me because I found for me personally, earning more money on an energetic level is just not a good driving force. It just doesn't work. My success comes about through the intention to help other people as much as possible. And from that as a side effect of that more people come to work with me than I benefit in terms of the, the financial side of it it's a very interesting and it's a very kind of refreshing approach in, in this age of like six figure seven figure yeah. trainer it's like basically if you enter the fitness industry I mentioned this on other podcast episodes because mm. it kind of annoys me that I see guys who've literally just qualified they've been qualified for six months mm. 12 months and they're expecting to set up an online business and have, you know, be generating six figures within you know, the first couple of months to the yeah. first year. And it, it, it's just unrealistic in any business. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's this kind of, in, there's this expectation now that people should sort of flood in uh, and work with you. And it reminds me of this guy I worked with a couple of years ago who was really, really interesting. He was younger than me. Mm. I learned a lot from him. And he was um, a trader. Right. So he basically was a self-taught trader on the stock market, which is yeah. something I, you know, would not even consider dabbling in. Mm. And he had some very interesting kind of uh, philosophies. And one of them was that he picked up from a mentor or he studied a lot, he read a lot to develop himself. One of them was just basically not having goals. Yeah. Because if you start to fix up, you know, put out uh, specific financial goals, in some ways it closes doors and limits your thinking. Yeah. And so one school of thought is you shouldn't have these goals and you should just kind of open yourself up to, well, what it, what can I, what can I achieve? And let's see yeah. what happens. And so it's very interesting that you don't have financial goals, let's say, as a driver. It's more yeah. about helping people, which is ultimately why I still talk about and involved in health and fitness I think it really I think this is a, a special industry and I think that trainers who are on the front line mm. with people working with people day in and day out have one of the most important jobs there is because you're literally on the front line against obesity type 2 diabetes you know the numbers of people who are suffering with type 2 diabetes and obesity related illness in the UK is massive and it's set to Double in, in a lot of cases by 2025, and so I think it's um it's very it's very you know powerful that you're kind of in it for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, very refreshing. Has it been a struggle because of that? Because you you haven't traditionally um, marketed yourself. The the 
my perception around around money has always been challenging for me. But then I charge more now down on the south coast than ninety nine percent of other PTs, and I'm fully booked for personal training. Um, I remember years ago uh, when I first started being fearful of am I going to be able to earn enough money each month and thinking that I needed to tie people into monthly packages whereby they pay each month. I never ended up going down that route. I've never been short. I've always gotten by. Everything's always come good when I've needed it to. And now I completely trust that process that I will have exactly what I need when I need it and it will come through for me. And I think the power behind that is because I actually believe it. It's not just some concept that I've grasped hold of and gonna like the idea of that. Fundamentally in my core, I've experienced it enough times to know that that is the truth for me. Uh, and so I never question it. And even though right now I'm in a, a huge period of transition where I don't really know what the future looks like for me, I haven't really got a goal other than I'm doing a little bit more work up in London now at the Commando Temple. I've got an idea on what I would like that to look like in the next 12 months. But the idea is so loose in my hand that it is almost an open hand of if I have too firm a grasp on where I think I'm going, like you've already said, it shuts opportunities down. Who knows what I'm going to be doing in the next 12 months, five years. I don't have a plan. I just know that I'm just going to keep showing up for myself and clearing any stuff that comes up for me on a deeper level and keep having the intention of wanting to work with people in as big a capacity as possible while maximising um, my you know, my financial reward for that as well. But it's, it's all about just kind of seeing what I can achieve and living a life with greater freedom and uh, more opportunity and uh, ultimately trying to scale things up a little bit in terms of, you know, how I operate the business. I call that being kind of fixed but flexible. Yeah. It's like you kind of have a, a compass point. You yeah. have a sort of direction you're heading in but you're quite open as to how you get there and also open to the fact that it might not shape up exactly the way you think it, it yeah. might at the moment. And what you said before was really just triggered a memory again, the fact that you, you're you open to things developing and you know creating space, but you actually believe it. Yeah. You actually believe it. Unlike a lot of people who, it reminds me, is it Pascal's Wager or something like that where it's basically, I can't remember, I, I'm going to mess this up, but it was a guy who didn't believe in God but thought the gamble should be that you should believe in God just in case. Just in case, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you don't yeah. want to go to hell. And it's yeah. kind of a similar thing. There are a lot of about, uh, people out there, I think, who are trying to kind of use the law of attraction. They're trying to uh, align their energy with, you know, being more successful, but they don't really believe it. They're just kind of uh, perhaps hopping on a trend or, I don't know, I don't, I don't quite know how to describe it. I think the, I think the problem with that stuff, Ollie, is... The problem with the law of attraction is it's a head-based idea and actually feelings are way more powerful and from my own uh, perspective and my own experiences, one of the biggest guiding factors for me in, term of, in terms of my business is how I actually feel about something and if I feel that something is right, I will feel a draw within me that isn't in my head, it comes from my body, it comes from my solar plexus and I feel a little pull towards that thing that I'm contemplating doing. If I trust my feelings, my feelings never let me down. If I try and think about something, um, that's the place where I tend to make mistakes. And I think that's one of the biggest things with this stuff is people ultimately don't feel, they can think about an idea and think that they've got it, but ultimately they're not feeling it in the body. And that's the difference between the success and failure of, of that kind of um, way of living. What do you feel when an idea is wrong or you, you are doing the wrong thing? Um, if I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing, I generally feel a repulsion to that thing. 
um, or I just get a, a like a, a feeling of wanting to reel away from it. Um, if I feel something's good, I'll kind of feel like almost like a bit of excitement within my body um, or a natural drawing towards it. Like I don't know how that's going to look, but I have to do that. Do you feel that's reliable or do you feel sometimes you could have an initial repulsion to something which could ultimately be a good thing? <laughs> yeah, because um, so what I've one of the things that I now do is I might have an idea about something, but then I'll press pause. And I, I very rarely make a snap decision now on anything. I take some time, I sit with it, and I just see how I feel because, of course, we can have feelings that are triggered by our response to certain things, in which case it may not be true. But once you've sat with something for a while, and it might take a few days, it might take a week, it might take a month, there's never any real rush to make a decision, I don't think, if you're running your own business, um, unless your back's against the door, of course, which hopefully you know you don't get into that position in the first place. But I think if you just take your time and just kind of have an idea of a seed of, of a feeling and then just seeing how it grows, and you'll know after a short period of time whether it's going to be right or not because things will start to happen in alignment with that particular process without you really trying for it. And do you feel that's an age thing? Do you think that's partly related to the fact that you're a little bit more mature, um, you have experience, or is it, um, is it conscious? Have you consciously tried to press pause so that you don't make snap decisions? Yeah, I, d I don't think... I mean, obviously, I've been on the planet nearly 45 years now, so that stacks up in my favour. However, I have spent a lot of time developing myself. I've spent a hell of a lot of time in, in meditation and really getting to know myself intimately from the inside out and being able to you know I put myself out there as being a highly intuitive trainer I am because I will pick up on things within a moment of seeing somebody on how what they're going to be capable of on a given day or little things that might just spark a, a thought process in me that lead me down a particular route to train somebody in a particular way that day in order to maximize their performance. I've had that like three times today with three clients. Um, so I'm very much intuitive, which is a skill like any other skill I've developed through a lot of time spent meditating, breathing, um, getting to know myself through the work I've done um, with my uh, with my mentor, and um, you know, getting to know myself and my shortfallings on a on a much deeper level. So I think it's that time that I've invested in myself, and it has been you know seven years of really delving deep, spending a lot of money to get to where I am now. But ultimately, it's gotten me to where I am now, so that I do live a happier, freer more rewarding and fulfilling life and chasing dreams I thought I'd never have the opportunity to do so it's it's definitely something that's come about through a lot of hard work. So you mentioned spending a lot of money and I take it that you mean investing a lot of money on yourself in, in exactly. your development exactly with that. coaches with mentors yeah which is a really interesting thing to me because a lot of people are reluctant to invest in their own health and fitness yeah their own mindset and they want to kind of passively consume stuff on social media and not yeah. pay for things. Yeah. And the people I see who are some of the best coaches and the best trainers helping people for the right reasons actually all have coaches, all have mentors and invest a lot of their money, a lot of their yeah. income into themselves so they yeah. can then, it can trickle down effect. Yeah. Who, who's your mentor? Do you have a main mentor? Uh, yeah, so my, my uh, mentor is uh, Julia Kai-Taylor. Um, she's a fantastic uh, coach and mentor, uh, ex-Commonwealth Games runner, top-level elite athlete, uh, master's runner now. But um, she's been a, a constant in my life for, uh, uh, well, seven years-ish, I think it is now. 
but um, she's been a, a, an absolute guiding light on helping me to understand myself better. I originally went to her because I'd got pain in my body that I just didn't think I should have. Um, I was, you know, a, a young man. I was training pretty hard, and I just had this feeling within me that the pain I'd got was a psychosomatic pain, and that was what led me to her. I went and saw a physio friend of mine, and he said maybe you should consider going and seeing her. So I did, and um, and sure enough, the pain I was experiencing in my body was linked to all of the stuff I'd been carrying around. This was after my period of the suicidal depression. This was a, number, a good number of years afterwards when I kind of thought, oh, I'm there, I know all this stuff. Then the pain was in my body that was showing me that even though in my head I felt okay, on a deeper subconscious level, there was a lot of stuff still trapped up in how I felt about myself, how I consequently ran my business, what I thought I was capable of. And, um, and so it's been a real journey of self-discovery under her wing. And um, she has been an incredible guiding light and without her help I definitely wouldn't be here where I am now doing the stuff that I'm doing. And does she do energy work or is it more mindset? Um, it's, to be honest, it's, I mean she's a, she's a mentor and healer I have done energy work with her in the past but actually, you know the depth of it ultimately is she coaches me for me to go away and use the tools that she gives me in order to sort my own shit out it, you know, somebody can't tell me how to think, she helps me to highlight where I've got patterns of behavior and triggers and things like that. I then become more aware of those, learn how to deal with those, and then gradually over time, and it is literally 24 seven, three, six, five, this process, which is why so few people manage to do it and do it well, is because it's fucking hard. It's relentless. And there have been a number of times when I've thought I've gotten halfway down this path. I feel like I want to get off it, but I know too much and I can't and you have to keep going and um, and so that's what I've done and like I say Ollie it's just been uh, it's been an amazing process of self-discovery and empowerment and um, and I use those skills that I've got for the benefit of the people I work with now as well because I help them to you know to see stuff that um, I've experienced and worked through like things like the addiction with the bodybuilding and various other things is all of those experiences have painted my kind of picture on the understanding I've got of the human being so I tend to work with and how I operate business. It's a continual process and it's kind of my, yeah. my favourite quote, you know, um, for George Bernard Shaw, life's not about finding yourself, life is about creating yourself. Yeah. yeah. I think that's something that not a lot of people realise. I think you get to, you think you're going to reach a kind of, a, you know, certain destination in life and yeah. you're going to have the the things you want and that's it, you kind of stop and just kind of relax. And I think yeah, yeah. this, I think comfort and the society that wraps us all in cotton wool and uh, treats us as kind of good consumers and yeah. tries not to offend anyone. I think it's massively, massively damaging because yeah. I think humans thrive on adversity, challenge, cold, yeah. you know, exercise, movement, less food. Yeah, uh, all of these things that kind of really bring us alive. And for me, in my own life, I find that you know the simplest things really, really bring me to life. Like, for example, taking a hike, hike up the nearby hill behind yeah. me. I've got a little storm kettle, light that with some pine cones, make a coffee. That is my perfect morning, and yeah, I yeah. take my kids with me, my wife as well. It's my perfect day, and it's not luxury. Yeah. It's not like you know, I, I just absolutely love that. And it really yeah. comes back to this idea of freedom. So you mentioned meditation. You've mentioned meditation a couple of times. Do you have a yeah. morning routine? Uh, I don't have. A, well, I have no set routines, but I do have a intention of doing it more days than I don't. So this morning I went out and did my class, came back, and I did fifteen minutes of 
um, of meditation. When I talk about meditation, my meditations over the years have changed. Um, they used to be heavily visualization based when I first started. I had different goals um, back then and I thought meditation was all about trying to get out of your body and trying to reach higher levels of consciousness and enlightenment. enlightenment. <laughs> and actually in more recent times, I just use a very simple Vipassana, which is a breathing based technique and um, you know there's a lot of talk of actually at the moment in the in the industry about the importance of breathing mm. and um, I've been doing this nasal breathing now for bloody years without really realizing the importance of it but the Vipassana breathing is very simple I simply focus on the breath at the top of the breath before you start the exhalation is when you're stillest that is your truest essence you're nothing more than the top of the breath there's nothing happening I'm not a PT, I'm not a dad, I'm not Matt Shore, I'm nothing. It's my, it's how I experience myself in its truest form. Then I exhale, and at the bottom of the breath, where I'm still before I inhale again, I'm again in that moment of stillness. I'm just a human being. And I focus on those two points through the meditation, and then that allows you then to experience the point of stillness where nothing is happening. Um, and that's simply how my meditation is. Um, but then I use that, therefore, on a day-to-day -day basis. So, for instance, if I'm might be out and about and I start to get triggered by something instead of being reactive and responding to that in a reactive manner I'll simply go to the Vipassana breathing and um, and it just presses pause on a situation and brings down your central nervous system stimulation and just allows you to live more calmly and ultimately live life as one big meditation instead of it just being something you do to escape escape a shitty day or to feel a bit better about yourself or to let go of some tension is once you've learned a technique like that like the Vipassana breathing is it becomes the the strategy that you do and it becomes your normal state as much as possible and it's the state that you go back to every time you wander off it or get pulled out by you know reactivity or whatever it is that's that's going on for you reactivity is interesting and what I'm picking up from you is a sense of relaxed control yeah is that you've learned invested and consciously developed a lot of control mechanisms techniques mental uh, you know physiological I'm sure with exercise which we'll chat about in a minute so that you can retain control and you can kind of uh, have a life you can you can live life on your terms because you're consciously yeah. doing it uh, yeah I mean control is definitely something I've worked with a lot over the years um, I try and move away you know, control's a funny word. I just see it as there are certain things I have in my life that if I know that I have those featuring, everything is good. And so I don't have a like a rigid plan. Um, I just know that if I get a reasonable amount of sleep and I drink enough water, I largely eat healthy food. Um, if I spend a bit of time meditating and I get out and train, ideally in the outdoors, and if I have good communication with, with people who are important to me, if I've got those six things in order and they're happening at some point in my life within a given week then everything is good from there so even though it sounds like I'm pretty controlled I'm fairly disciplined on how I live my life but it doesn't even feel like discipline it's because it's what I do hmm. and it's the intention isn't to be controlling it just happens because that is my core essence of one of being organized stepping forward and living my life in a way in which I've chosen to live it, but I've done it now for so long that that's just how I live. It's never really a conscious, I need to manage these things in order to get to there. I think control is probably the wrong word. I, I, I kind of halfway through realized that discipline is probably a better word, yeah, yeah. but not in a kind of um, 
overly militaristic discipline type way but just discipline to do the things you know you need to do yeah. in order to maintain the kind of, of life course, yeah. lifestyle and life the way you want it to be yeah um, if someone wanted to get into meditations, the Vipassana breathing sounds very much like something I've played around with, which, which yeah. is box breathing. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, you breathe in, maybe you'll have a four-second retention. Yeah. But obviously that probably comes from a Vipassana. If someone... I think a lot of people now think they should meditate, yeah. which gives creates anxiety and puts pressure on them because they've got to tick these boxes. Like, yeah. I need to exercise this much and I need to kind of meditate yeah. in the morning and I've got to have this crazy morning routine. For someone who would like to get into meditation, though, because for whatever reason, they maybe need to kind of uh, get more in touch with themselves. Yeah. What they want, they need to calm down. They need to reduce their stress levels. What would you suggest as a good entry point? Literally Vipassana, because if you lose the title meditation and just call it breathing work, you know, I think there's so much bullshit in there in the industry that talks about breathe through one nostril, hold it for four seconds, make sure you you exhale at this rate, just fucking breathe through your nose, slow and controlled, and be more aware. I just think that, you know, if people are putting out different methodologies and so on and so forth, it's because they've got something to sell or they're trying to get somewhere with it. And I, I think from my own experiences, uh, just keep it simple. You know, if you start doing something that you haven't been doing before and it's doing you good, it's going to work. It can't not work because you're doing something different. So the more simplistic you can make it, the less likely you are to fail at doing it because all you've got to do is breathe in, place your awareness at the top, exhale, place your awareness at the bottom. It's not even about trying to find yourself or get more in touch with yourself. That happens as a side effect of doing the breathing. So if we try and stop achieving anything other than just doing the breathing, then everything that's meant to happen will happen from that place. And I think for us as human beings, that's very difficult to grasp because we're brought up and told that we have to work hard to get there. We have to have a plan. We have to know what, you know, we have to know how we're going to get from A to B. But actually, I think just by engaging in the practice and letting the practice do its magic and speak for itself, then the good stuff will happen from there and you'll learn way more than trying to think of a way in which you think or perceive you're going to get a particular thing if you do A and you get a different thing if you do B. Which leads to the poor performance anxiety so many people feel when they're trying to meditate and they're not they're not suddenly floating and enlightened. Yeah. It also leads us back to Osho. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so this particular audio book that really helped me when I was in a dark time uh, in my life was meditations on, he calls it Sufism, Sufism, which is a mystical branch of Islam. Yeah. It's nothing to do with that. I'm not really particularly interested in the religious side of things, but his voice in his meditation garden in yeah. India he could just be saying anything I don't give a fuck what he's saying it's just the most soothing thing mm. listening to him but he tells this incredible story it's called The Parable of the Sands mm. I don't know if you're familiar with this not that one uh, it, it, this, this is this is one thing I kept on coming back to when I was very very stuck and mm. feeling very very lost and uh, essentially it's basically about a river that starts off it's dropped down as a you know rain on the top of a mountain and it's a young stream and it flows down and it overcomes every rock and corner and obstacle in its life etc etc and it's fine and it progresses really really well until it gets to the edge of the desert and then none of the learning it has so far can help it in this new situation mm. and it's on the edge of the desert it doesn't know how to get across to the other side and cut a long story short basically it has to sort of surrender it has to give up and trust in the uh the wind if you like so the heat evaporates it mm. clouds carry it over the desert and drop it as new rain on the other side and you know, it's kind of cheesy, I guess, but for me, it really, really helped me because it it taught me that sometimes I needed to actually stop fighting, yeah, and I needed to actually surrender 
Yeah. Uh, and surrendering's give different to giving up in my mind. Mm. Uh, it's just a temporary kind of like a tactical retreat. Yeah. So what you, you mentioned Osho earlier, uh, you know, what is it about him that you were drawn to and what have you read? Um so with for Osho for me it was because um I got into him really when um my wife and I decided that we were going to split and um perfectly amicably we just had a growing apart and we recognized that actually we'd been well we'd been best friends for uh, all of our married life um, actually fundamentally there was something that was missing and we both felt that and I remember splitting up and initially thinking oh I feel great because the old pattern of me which used to feel very alone and lonely um, I thought had disappeared but of course what happened is the marriage had been covering that up and so after a few months of uh, after Kay had left and I was still living in the marital home as I became acutely aware of the fact that I wasn't okay being on my own. And Osho uh, had a book uh, called, um, I think it was something like Loving and Aloneness. But uh, I read it um, because I was looking for uh, a greater explanation on how to be okay being alone without having somebody else to fill a void that was a distraction from ultimately feeling pretty crap. Um, so that was uh, that was the first book I read by Osho, but then I also read um, Living Dangerously, which is another good book of his. And then since then I've read bits and pieces and listened to different bits and pieces. But again, I very rarely finish a book. I tend to be drawn to a particular thing, read it, get the bit that I need from it, and then I, I lose interest in it straight away once I've, once I've gleaned the thing that clearly I was meant to pick up. So Let's talk training. First of all, you mentioned the Commando Temple. What, what is the Commando Temple? Uh, Commando Temple is a gym owned by a good friend of mine, Rob Blair. Um, he he is the founder and created it. It's basically a one of the best, unique uh, training facilities in the UK. It's a world-class gym. It's strongman-based, but they have powerlifting, they have martial arts, calisthenics, kettlebells, all kinds of equipment from dinny stones to Husafelt stones to massive tyres, atlas stones, circus dumbbells, a whole paraphernalia of grip based stuff um, it's in Deptford and um, it really is a very unique uh, and amazing place to coach from and what drew you to basing yourself and what is it one day a week at the commander temple yeah so I've, I've known Rob for a very long time at the time when I when I first came across Rob he like me was an outdoor PT operating from Greenwich Park and I saw an article that um, he had had written um, in men's fitness or men's health magazine and he was training with kettlebells and Bulgarian bags at the same time as doing that I was also starting my journey with kettlebells and Bulgarian bags and I just liked his vibe um, anyway he had a, a workshop that he did once a month in, uh, in Greenwich Park which was an atomic workshop I started to go and attend that which was basically a three hour beasting Rob's next marine he knows how to hand out a beasting that, we all knew that that's what that session was about and I loved it and then um, Rob and I just hit it off pretty much straight away we respected each other's work ethic and um, and so yeah uh, he then navigated away from being outside and set up the commando temple and then um, I've been wanting to kind of be up there for for a number of years and I tried to coach up there a few years ago but my son was relatively newborn then the timing of it just wasn't right my heart wasn't in it now things have changed and um, you know obviously my wife and I have separated I've got a much greater level of freedom in my life now um, and my son is older so he doesn't require 
um, us to be around as much as we were back then it's therefore paved the way for me to be up in London and Rob invited me up there to say you know do you want to come up and coach up here once a week and see if we can grow a client base from there and so I've been up there now for it's coming up to three months and uh, things are taking off really well and um, so I'm coaching up there once a week with a view to doing that more in the next 12 months so the goal is for me to be in London more uh, while continuing to operate train strong from Eastbourne and service the the clients that I serve down here in addition to the group training and so on as well that I've got running alongside so so yeah but um, we've got some great stuff going on at the temple and um, I'm enjoying coaching up there I do some workshops up there so a strongman workshop once a month which is open to anybody they don't have to be a member of the gym uh, there's going to be another mace workshop which I'll be uh, running from there and also Rob and I are working on various different mountain based projects as well because Rob also like myself is a mountain leader and we've got a few things in the pipeline that we're working on to uh, help people to experience more mountain based events and challenges. Speaking of which I see beautiful photos regularly on your Instagram feed of you in the mountains yeah like quite often on your own yeah and you're out just having adventures yeah what kind of draws you to the mountains what drew you to being a mountain leader and what do you what do you find when you're out there um well what drew me to the mountains was i'd never been in the mountains before until i did a, a my mate robert commando temple set up a challenge which was the twisted peaks challenge it was basically the national three peaks done over three days but carried 24 kilo kettlebell to the top of each mountain do swings at the top and bring it down in a pack in a pack in, in addition to all your other mountain gear so you know i was carrying up 30 kilos on my back uh there's about 22 of us did it not everybody carried 24 some you know the girls carry 16s or less some people just did it without but anyway we completed it um and after that i remember seeing on sas who dares wins on channel four it was the first series they had a race called the fan dance which is based on special forces selection and I remember seeing it and the pass mark for that race, 24 kilometer race over Penafan and back with a 35 pound pack on your back plus water and food like they do in the, in the military in the SAS selection. I remember seeing that program and thinking, I wonder if I've got what it takes to pass the SAS grade. And so I entered the fan dance off the strength of that, didn't really know what I was doing in terms of training. And then the first time I did it, I did it in four hours, 26. Um, was disappointed with my time but at the same time just knew that I hadn't trained and I realised that just being strong and kettlebell fit was nowhere near enough to be mountain fit for it and so then I recognised I wanted to reach the grade which then catapulted me into spending more time in the Brecon Beacons a lot of which was on my own going out and training getting in the miles with pack on my back six months later I took the summer fan dance did it in three hours 56 and what I remember passing and getting that four hour pass mark and thinking, I can go way faster. And so I spent another six months training hard for that. And um, six months later, entered the event again and did it in three hours, 30 and 53 seconds and finished third on the day uh, in the open category. Um, so that time in the mountains just gave me this feeling of uh, confidence and self-sufficiency and just really showed me that you know when you're out in the mountains and you're on your own you're on your own completely and you're gonna have to get yourself off the mountain when you're tired 
you're going to have to sort yourself out. If you run out of food, you're going to have to sort yourself out. If you get into the shit, you need to sort yourself out. And I really like that idea of what it taught me about taking my level of confidence and self-sufficiency to a completely new level. And the, the, the ability to really dig in in terms of, you know, when you're tired and your feet hurt and you've got blisters, if you're still miles from home, you're still miles from home, you have to put up with it and get on. And um, and so that was what led me into spending lots of time in the mountains. And because of what that did for me on a deeper level and appreciating the beauty and the solitude and the the expanse of it was I just thought people could do with uh, spending more time in the mountains and away from social media and day-to-day bullshit. And so that's what led me into um, taking on the challenge of becoming a mountain leader. And I say challenge because in order to become a mountain leader, you spend a week doing a course, which is seven days long training course. You then have to go and accrue 40 days of what they call quality mountain days. Now, living down where I live on the south coast of England, that takes a hell of a lot of expense and time in order to get yourself up to the nearest mountains, which are a minimum four and a half, five hours drive away, Brecon Beacons. They don't really consider the the Mountain Training Association prefers you to get mountains in Snowdonia, Lake District, Scotland. So you're looking really at a minimum of eight hours driving. When you've got that kind of time to accrue a minimum of 40 days and get useful experience of that, that takes a lot of time and energy and effort and so it took me two years to accumulate all of that and then earlier this year sat my mountain leader assessment passed it with flying colors and um since then i've been taking groups away and sharing mountain experiences with them i've just spent um seven days in the lake district with my family yeah and um, we've got young kids so we we did a little bit of kind of hiking but nothing hardcore Mm. Uh, and i didn't really have the time to split off but i'm hugely drawn to high ground yeah whenever i find myself struggling with something like this morning (laughs) i find myself up a hill like the highest hill i can find near me yeah uh it was early morning there's low hanging mist sun's coming up and i just it's just something that kind of makes me understand and remember that life is okay yeah yeah you know uh, and it's some some power of being up high I don't know what it is but it's, mm. it's interesting to me describe what it's like doing um, the fan dance to us though because like Penny Fan if you're not familiar with it I'm not I've never been there but it's a it's a um, fairly steep mountain in yeah. Wales in the Brecon Beacons yeah um, as you mentioned it's where the SAS do part of their selection yeah um you're carrying a load what, what's it like what's that doing that in three hours 30 minutes what's three it like three hours 30 um, the fan dance is absolute hell because they st- you start on a hill and within the first two minutes your heart rate is already pretty much at max you're not going fast because you've got 42 pounds on your back so 35 pounds plus water and food your pack has to weigh 35 pounds at the end of the race as well and the thing is, is you want to be going fast. You feel like you should be going fast because you're breathing out of your ass. And, you know, I remember looking down at my heart rate and seeing it at 170 beats a minute. I know I can sustain 165, 170 for, say, an hour. But when you then think, I'm going to be doing this for at least three hours, that becomes a mindset of, you know, how can I possibly sustain that? And for me, it's been a constant process of observing my limiting thought of, this really hurts, I can't sustain it. And then replacing it with, everything's okay because it's not a problem till it becomes a problem and right now you can keep going. But also when you do the fan dances, it it takes you anywhere. Well, my my fastest time getting from the red phone box down by the story arms to the summit of Panifan is 45 minutes with a 35 pound pack on plus water and food. 
once you get to the summit of Panifan, you then descend down the steepest side of Panifan, which is Jacob's Ladder. When you get down that, you then cross a, a really stony, rocky path called uh, to a place called Windy Gap. When you get to Windy Gap, you've got a very long, uh, slight downhill gradient for about 5k to a halfway rendezvous point where you sign in. You then turn around and come back up this incline all the way back, and it's it's called the Roman Road. It's basically a dirt track. Uh, higher up, it's got rocks on it, but there are clearer paths that you can take. Further down, it becomes a really rocky section, two-thirds of the way down. Then beyond that, you've got like a forest track and some grass that you can run on. Then you reverse it all the way back, and it's literally a drag all the way back up to Windy Gap. You then cross back over Windy Gap. Then you come across Jacob's Ladder, which is the steepest side of Penny Fan. So by this time, you've already been out for, in my case, around about two hours 50 on my fastest time. Every time I've done the fan dance race, I've been absolutely plagued by cramp going up uh, Jacob's Ladder. Then when you get onto the top of the summit, you check in with the rendezvous point there, and then it's basically a two and a half mile downhill run as fast as you can to the finish line. Your feet hurt, your back hurt, everything hurts, your hips, you're absolutely completely wiped out. There's a reason the SAS use it for their test marches and for proving people is because it is absolutely brutal. But the training that I did for that put me in the best possible physical preparation I could have. When I achieved the three hour 30, I'd had a period of six months of consistently hitting 40 to 60 miles a week of running, um, mainly low intensity, building the base. Included in that was some tabbing work with a pack on my back, um, some fast interval sessions as well. So before the fan dance, I did a 5K run, which was 19 minutes and 23, so a decent 5K speed. But unlike most of the guys who train people for the fan dances, I hardly did any pack work, really, compared to what most do. It's mainly about building the engine through long, low-intensity running, building the aerobic pathways, and then including a little bit more pack work within the last sort of six weeks before the competition gets closer. Um, the reason for that, I found, is doing a lot of heavy pack work makes you more injury-prone, robs you of um, your posture, and is more likely to break the body down. And I found a much easier way, or not easier, but a more effective way, less injury-prone way of doing that was to do more running and less tabbing. So you build the engine and you save the exposure to the load for, exactly. for basically when you need it and yeah. rely yeah. on the kind of base of training. Yeah. Okay, so with the endurance-style training, because I've seen you doing a lot of this recently, and obviously it's related to the kind of the, the races and the competitions you've been doing, like like the fan dance, I'm interested that you've mentioned a couple of times like a sub-maximal approach. Yeah. I think to kind of lifting and your you know yeah. strength work, but also to your endurance training. Just talk us through that kind of endurance training protocol. If, if like for example, I'm really drawn to doing the fan dance, but yeah. um, one day well, I will, I will, I'd like to see what I'm made of because I've yeah, never yeah. really gravitated towards endurance work. Yeah. So, what's your approach when you go out? Because it's fairly low level. It's lower heart rate and it's longer yeah. duration. So my my approach has been generally to work towards the Maffetone equation, and it's based on the understanding that in order to develop the aerobic system the size of the engine as maximally as possible we need to develop the aerobic pathways the aerobic pathways are not developed by doing high intensity exercise the mitochondria need the opportunity to be able to work with and develop energy from and release energy from using oxygen so therefore my approach has been one based upon um, the knowledge that I picked up from Commonwealth Games runners who would spend a lot of time doing 
what some people would consider these days to be junk mileage well you know what I'm going to listen to the people who have been the very top of their game and do exactly what they've been doing which is hours and hours and hours of long steady distance which helps to build the aerobic system and to foster the aerobic pathways but without breaking the body down so I could run 60 miles a week without getting injured while working on a business full time and also being a dad to my son and I achieved that because my training was such that we don't need to be smashing our body to pieces in training you know I think this is an idea that's flawed we don't need to be going to war on our bodies we need to be nurturing our bodies and engaging in training that's going to help to sow the seed of adaptation so it can grow rather than trying to pull up on the roots that are growing to make them go faster we just have to let it happen naturally and by doing a more gentle approach to um, training but massively consistent then I found that for me I mean there's obviously lots of ways you can skin a cat but for me it worked really well in that I could get the mileage that I needed to which therefore builds long-term endurance strength in addition to adapting the aerobic pathways in the same time now of course with an event like the fan dance there's a hell of amount of suffering involved in that and you need also a basic level of fundamental strength at the same time and so strength training has to form a part of that as well but again with the strength training is there's no point doing strength type sessions that leave you riddled with doms so then you can't run efficiently the next day it's about creating the kind of balance whereby you can train pretty hard but it doesn't break you down too much it needs to be more supporting and nurturing again rather than breaking the body down smashing it to smithereens and all of those things which I have done in the past when I used to think differently about myself and about training and um, you know I learned to, to let go of that kind of training ideal that harder is better uh, I now understand that better is better and so um, even now you know if you look at me on Instagram I might be doing some pretty heavy stuff that's because that heavy stuff might be heavy to you as a relative but to me it's the weights that I use and so it, from the outside looking in it can look pretty brutal and savage but actually it's because I've been doing this stuff for so many years now that that is the level that I'm at and that's my normal kind of level which I operate at. So I've played around a little bit with the Maffetone method yeah. um, and I think actually after kind of listening to you uh, via kind of Instagram or, yeah, yeah. or whatever and also having a chat with you kind of exchanging a yeah. few messages and um, really really interesting working towards those lower heart rate zones. Yeah. Uh, and st having to stop and walk yeah. up a hill yeah, it's hard. quite yeah. regularly, which is very counterintuitive to the traditional wisdom of smash yourself, you're in yeah. the glycolytic, glycoly glycolytic kind of a yeah. you know, burning zone. Um, you are um, harder and more is better. And, and also kind of like the, the I guess the, the hit approach, the high yeah. intensity. Yeah. But exactly as you say, a little bit frustrating at first because you have to slow down but the recovery is amazing like yeah. no soreness yeah. and the next day you can easily strength train exactly and I find that you know I think it's maybe when you get over 40 yeah. you have to um, pick and choose your battles in terms yeah, yeah. of how hard you train yeah. and what you put your intense, your energy and your intensity into mm. because I find that I, um, if I train hard in the gym with weights um, I get like a hangover and like a, right. <laughs> I, and I suffer for it and yeah, it kind yeah. of takes me out of action with doms for a good few days and yeah. then it limits what I can do yeah. and I love to move yeah. which is why I gravitated I think in the last couple of years to a lot of body weight based gymnastic strength training because yeah. I found that I can stay strong and uh, you know I found it really humbled me at first but yeah. I would not experience the same kind of soreness as if mm. I was doing a more traditional kind of like bodybuilding mm. protocol what uh, if anything um, pisses you off most about modern society 
Well, I don't really get pissed off because um, if I was getting pissed off, then that's just my own reactivity. Frustrates. Let me say frustrates you. I would not even get frustrated, Ollie. It's because, you know, I pretty much detach myself from a lot of the bullshit that's out there. You know, I very, very rarely watch the news, for instance. I never read newspapers because, you know, some people say, oh, well, you're just burying your head in the sand. You know what is, you know, the stuff that is out there just doesn't affect me and it hasn't affected me and I've not felt any need to do it. So in terms of stuff that pisses me off, you know, I think human beings could communicate better and connect more with each other. But, you know, people either do or they don't. They either come to the same conclusion as me that, you know, connectivity and relationship with other people is massively important or they don't and they carry on doing the same old bullshit. It's not my concern. It doesn't impact me. The most important thing for me is how I live my life, how my son is, and am I doing the things that ultimately I wanted to get out of life. So long as those things are happy, I don't really care what's going on around me too much. And that might sound like a selfish attitude, but it's actually not because everybody's own life is their responsibility, not mine. I can help somebody to lead a better life, but ultimately the book stops with them. And I can offer advice on how to train, on how to live more healthily and how to change your mind. But if, unless that person's willing to do it, then I could channel all my energy into doing that and have absolutely zero impact. doesn't mean the information I've given is shit. It just means that the person fundamentally can't do it. And so I think really there's nothing really that pisses me off. I would just like to see a world in which people communicate better, control their reactivity more, ultimately become more self-aware of their patterns and behaviours that negatively impact themselves and others and just try and live a life that is perhaps more simple and honest. That's why I like doing these podcasts. We could do this via Zoom or Skype, yeah. or but I like to do them in person. Yeah, so I've yeah. you know, travelled a fair distance to be with you, so we yeah. can we can have a chat. We're on the yeah. sofa, we're having a coffee, yeah. we're having a really, well, for me, a really, really interesting chat and unpacking good good things that people need to know. Um, as a coach and as a trainer, I've definitely got sucked into the trap of trying to save people. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you care about people, you want to help people, and you you know you want to save them and sort of do it for them almost you get kind of you beat yourself up if people don't get what they want out of it if they don't achieve the results they're looking yeah. for in some ways because you feel like you failed them and it's uh it's interesting to you know i think it's very important to break that mindset because it's very uh it's a sort of dead end basically is, because, yeah. as you said you can lead people down the path but you can't uh you know kind of ex- make them do anything yeah with social media i this is an interesting one for me because i naturally dislike social media i have a love-hate relationship with it so i have appeared on social media a lot and i've i've, I've got in fact i've got a hundred thousand word mm. book which i've written of facebook posts with yeah. kind of motivational posts and stuff like that then i also just basically came off social media for a year and i didn't really use it at all didn't go yeah. on and i was it was one of the happiest times of my life yeah i was much more focused on my family mm. my kids i wasn't distracted and i just i just felt like a better human being mm. and I still have this love-hate relationship where I've got a business to run and I have a message to share and the best way I think is to share it via social media however it impacts my life and makes me it reduces my quality of life using it yeah. what's your take on social media like do you because I, I think it exacerbates a lot of these, yeah. these, these problems nowadays I mean I, I I enjoy it um, I'm aware of the fact that it can be a massive distraction so it's easy if you're having a bit of a crappy day flick on Instagram flick on Facebook you know or people you know they're having a shit day so they put out on Facebook they're having a shit day suddenly everybody jumps all over it like fleas you know hope you're okay hon 
It doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help the person who's put it out there because really what they should be doing is dealing with that shit themselves instead of spewing it out all over the place. I, I use social media for myself just in terms of, you know, putting out there about what I'm doing in terms of me, in terms of Train Strong, how I'm living my life with greater freedom in the hope of potentially inspiring others. But at the same time, I may not, you know, who knows what people get from me and my social media. I never ask. I just know that I enjoy it. Um, there are times when I don't want to do it and and therefore I don't and there are times when I want to do more of it and therefore I do but um, you know I like I like I like Instagram and LinkedIn I'm not so keen on Facebook I'll use it just as a way of kind of create a, create an image of you know how I'm living my life how others could potentially live in a similar way um, or what can be achieved if you invest in yourself for uh, trying to get out of the way of yourself, chase your dreams and that kind of thing. But ultimately does it bring it up does it bring me more business? Occasionally. It's just something I enjoy doing and therefore I'm gonna do it. So and when I stop enjoying it, I'll stop doing it. I think one of the reasons I feel torn is the pressure on younger generations and there's some growing and mounting research into kind of um it, it contributing to depression, feelings of isolation. Yeah. And I think kind of a uh, mental toxicity, I guess is yeah. a way to describe it. And yeah. I I, I, I kind of that concerns me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I, I have you know, I, I, if I put my hand up and truthfully speak about social media, there are times when it really is a medium for accessing my um, feelings of not good enough or the ones that remain in me. You know, you, the comparison, and it may not even be a conscious comparison. You just constantly, you know, or you can constantly be looking around, going, "Oh, well, they're doing that, and I'm not doing that. Maybe I should be doing that." Oh, my, that person appears to be successful they're doing that maybe I should be doing that and I do think that the, um, that if you're not aware of that then that can really uh, access uh, our feelings and, and wounds that we've got where we might not feel good enough or we might not feel worthy or we might not feel enough um, and so I think it's always useful to be mindful of when that is happening and to be able to take a back step from that and go you know what I need to be losing, using social media a bit less or um, this isn't making me feel good, I need some time off it so that I can work on this stuff and then try it again as a test. But um, ultimately, I think it's like any tool that can be useful. If you use too much, it can be destructive. Yeah, and it's, it's not the tool that often there's an underlying yeah. issue and it potentially exacerbates it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you get business from LinkedIn? It's interesting that you use LinkedIn. Um, I've only just started using it again properly to be honest and the reason for that is because um, with me doing more mountain type stuff that is the way in which I feel uh, the next part of my business will end up going in more of and I think I'm more likely to attract in the kind of people who want to come to mountains more through something like LinkedIn so more professional and more um, kind of uh, business based and um, and it's something I've not really played around with before so I've used Instagram Facebook and Twitter extensively over the last, you know, five or six years particularly. LinkedIn is something I've not really used that much, so this year I've started to use it, and I just literally have no agenda with it. I just share some stuff that I feel like sharing and just see what comes of it. So I see you doing some interesting stuff, because obviously, despite my love-hate relationship, I, I use social media yeah, myself, yeah. So um, and I follow you on Instagram, and I see you doing some really cool interesting looking things particularly with maces yeah, so I often you. see you outdoors yeah. that's what you do um, but sort of swinging maces around so uh, and in particular you've got a, a really nice mace from on it like a, what's it called quad god 
the quad god from yeah, on it yeah. which is just a cool looking piece of equipment anyway yeah. I mean it's the sort of thing that makes you feel manly just like looking at it and holding <laughs> it <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's a good bit of kit so um what what got you into mace training? What what is mace training for people who don't understand? Or know? Um, well, mace training is uh, originated in uh, Persia hundreds of years ago. It was a way in which they would train um, their warriors to become stronger at wielding swords. And it's um, back then they were called guarders. They're even called guarders now. Um, but um, the Western world adopted it as the steel mace, um, and it's basically a a weight on the end of a long pole which you traditionally swing behind the body um, and it's known for being able to strengthen the grip the arms the upper body while improving mobility and um, and connectivity within the upper body in relation to the lower body um, so that's basically it I got into it because at the time I was doing a lot of tabbing and my thoracic spine and posture were taking a pounding from wearing heavy packs and being in a human cushion up position stood up and so I wanted to I got kind of drawn towards the mace because I thought oh this will be a good way of strengthening my upper body in a different way that's not push-ups and chin-ups um, and it just looked fun it looked so, cool. so I did uh, the mace workshop with uh, Rick Brown Mr. Mace Man few years ago and started to use the mace and just got really into it and it really seemed to complement well um, the tabbing I was doing strengthen my upper body had a knock-on effect for other things like doing push-ups and so on um, and then I, so I really it really started to enjoy it then I um, was just doing really 10 to 2s and 360s with it for the most part then I had an expedition to Aconcagua which was a high altitude mountain that very nearly ended up costing me my life Due to altitude sickness, altitude sickness, and also the the extreme uh, temperature, but it was mainly the the sickness that I was suffering with, extreme altitude sickness on summit day. Nearly didn't make it off, and then what I when I got back to the UK, I picked up training again for the fan dance. Within four months of being back, my body was just racked with pain, and I could see that I hadn't acknowledged what had happened to myself on the mountain and how close I'd come to not making it and how moreover how dig how deep I'd had to dig in order to get myself off and so this pain in my body led me to move to stopping running because I couldn't I couldn't run my hips and knees and ankles were just too painful every day and it led me into looking at doing some very light mace work which was based upon mace flow and there was a guy called Leo Savage who is a guy out in uh, the states who is the king of mace flow and um, I watched, watched some of his videos and thought that's what I feel like I need to be doing right now much more movement based flowing almost expressive like dance work pretty much with a mace some people liken it to baton twirling I can see why who gives a shit it's, it's fun that's all that matters as far as I'm concerned but uh, it just helps me to um, develop some skills that I had not really tried to develop before and uh, really enjoyed the process but moreover it allowed me to heal my body and to move better um, from there I just got I could feel my strength starting to regain by doing the mace flow stuff and then as time went on I could feel that my body was ready to start engaging in strength training strength training proper again and also some running and that just led me down into playing with heavier maces and that's taken me to where I am now being able to comfortably swing a 20 kilo mace which is a pretty hefty mace along with doing a whole other cool stuff um, but one of the things I love about the mace is it because it's so unconventional 
it really does fill in the gaps that other training modalities leave behind it can be used as an assessment tool for mobility it can be used as a way of developing unconventional strength and unconventional movements like um, you know hinge type patterns overhead type squats the the traditional 360s and 10 to 2s um, but also because of the the nature of the high repetition nature of things like the 10 to 2s and 360s I tend to train that in a very high volume kind of way and that in itself is incredibly meditative and um, I found the whole contraction relax the contract relax movement associated with 10 to 2s particularly just seemed to have an, an effect on my central nervous system that even though I was working really hard it induced a state of relaxation once I'd finished the finished the session and uh, and I've explored that and I've observed it in other people as well so when I taught my my uh, MACE workshop at um, Unique Results in Chelmsford um, back in May I think it was a lot of the guys and girls who came on that commented on how relaxed they felt after the session even though they've been working really hard to master the skills something happened whereby they got into a zone of being completely internalised on trying to fine tune the movement and removing the kind of external distractions that were around them within the within the group training environment. There's a hypnotic quality to watching some of the mace work, particularly the ten to twos. And the ten yeah. to two is like swinging behind the body from like ten o'clock to two o'clock. To two o'clock. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of thoracic extension. Yeah. Under load. Yeah. And you're opening up the shoulders into external rotation. Yeah. A lot of core demand. Yeah. Uh. But also like uh coordination. Yeah. And as you say, contracting and relaxing. So there are periods where you are, I guess, riding gravity and you're not under load, and then you're Correct. coming back into contraction. So yeah. I haven't actually. Well, I haven't tried it with a mace, but I play around with axes. I, I chop a lot of wood at home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of my things that I find very therapeutic. And yeah. I'll often warm up with a sledgehammer or mm. I've got this massive thing I you, you beat down tarmac with, which yeah, is quite yeah. heavy. Yeah, another thing. Um, yeah. And I just, I'll often do some sort of playing, yeah. which, you know, based on 10 to 2s, yeah. and I think a few 360s and some yeah. single arm stuff. And um, yeah, I think the takeaway for me is that I should do more of it, particularly for my shoulder health. Yeah, um, I'm I'm really drawn to the, this kind of flowing movement stuff. I mean, I, I really got I really liked following Edo Portal's stuff from the point of view of the, the I like the gymnastic strength stuff. Yeah, but for me, the flow stuff on the floor, it's just like when I grow up, I want to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. and when I've tried, it's so alien and hard compared to from from a kettlebell world, from you know rings, from weightlifting, from whatever. Yeah it's just totally different yeah. and you'll knock you on your ass because you know you just don't your body's not capable of yeah, yeah. hitting a lot of those positions and I guess some of the mace flow work looks like it gets into similar territory um, it can do yeah yeah I, the, the reason I like the mace flow stuff is it's just a, an expression of your own creativity now I'm not a massively you know I'm not a good dancer I'm never going to sing I like writing but I also express myself through my movement and through my strength and through my performance. That really is the way in which I create stuff for myself. And so for me, you know, being able to put together a, you know, a fairly complex flow successfully and make it look seamless and good was incredibly rewarding. I don't see it as the, like the next ultimate way to train because ultimately it's a load of random stuff thrown together. And so it's, it's going to take you so far down the road but it's not going to take you all of the way depending upon what, upon what you want to achieve and, um, I do think it has a place in its movement it involves some strength and coordination it's enjoyable, it's fun to me, that ticks a lot of boxes and is a good enough reason in itself to do it irrespective of whether it makes you stronger more fucking toned, lose body fat who, you know, whatever, whatever it is, is 
find a training modality that you enjoy and do it consistently. And don't get too rigid in your thinking. And, and don't it, get too rigid. This is something that struck me about Strong First. When I came, I did the Strong First uh, certification for Kettlebell. Yeah. I didn't go any further in the journey because um, I had huge respect for it, huge respect for Pavel. Yeah, yeah. Dan John was like, I hadn't really come across Dan John much yeah. before the certification. And he was just awesome. Yeah. The thing that stuck out most of all from that workshop was how humble he was. Someone was a little bit up on their high horse, a personal trainer who thought they were a corrective exercise specialist, and they tried to challenge Dan John, and they asked him a question about thoracic spine mobility or something like that. And he just turned around, looked the guy in the eye, and just said, look, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, this yeah. is like a world-class strength coach, and he's not pretending to be something he's not. Yeah. He was just very chilled about it. And I thought this is... So, so I had a huge respect for that world, and also just the, the people I see involved in you know, high-level kettlebell activity. However, people get very rigid, they get very fixed, and there's a lot missing from the kettlebell world. Yeah. And I think if you get too fixed and attached to one tool, you get too dogmatic to one philosophy, then you, you just close doors and you leave so much out. So yeah. I, I, I like this idea of mixing in different things, you know, yeah. bit of mace work, but don't fall in love with it as the be all and end all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like any tool, it's there, it can fit a purpose. Personally, for me, you know, I've been training with kettlebells now for absolutely years. I love kettlebell training, I love mace training. I've been recently enjoying doing a little bit of bench pressing because I used to compete national level powerlifter for three years on the Triton British Championships. I'd not done any benching for 10 years. It was nice to be able to go back and do some benching and realise I've not really lost that much strength even though I've not been doing it. But um, I love kettlebells and the mace. I love Bulgarian bags. I love you know body weight. Tra- I love training full stop for the most part. And I think it's it's easy to tell people that they have to train in a particular way and that you have to be following a particular routine most of my training these days is fairly random and I tend to just go based upon what am I working towards what do I feel like doing today if I'm going to be training for an event like the fan dance or getting up at Aconcagua I'm going to have a greater emphasis on endurance work because that's what that's going to demand but I also need some strength work my strength work doesn't really matter what it looks like so long as I'm going to be looking at some core work and heavily involvement in legs doesn't matter whether I'm lunging, squatting Bulgarian split squatting, whatever it is so long as I'm doing something consistently and I'm working 70-80% to 80% of my max I'm going to be getting adaptations um, and I think that can be you know, that's one of the ways in which I've coached particularly group sessions a lot over the years is some of the people who come to my classes are phenomenally strong we don't follow a set routine but we do follow a core principle of doing certain movements in certain ways more often than not that might be once a week it might be every other week but it's there and it's consistent and I think this idea of having to do stuff over and over and over again for the large part just isn't necessary unless you want to achieve a very specific goal like a half body weight press if you want to do a half body weight kettlebell press you're going to need to do plenty of pressing for the most part but um, I just think um you know, there's so much stuff that makes fitness sound rigid and restrictive, and that goes for fitness, nutrition, mobility, movement, all of that stuff. Anything that's rigid and this is the way to do it is, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, and uh, and I think people should just do what they enjoy. Because yeah, often there's a guru at the top trying to push a particular program. Yeah, and, uh, it's a commercial. It's often commercially driven. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting. You said there's many ways to skin a cat. I mean, literally, when it comes to nutrition, losing weight, yeah. burning fat getting strong there are lots of ways to do it you can yeah. do it with body weight you can do it with kettlebells yeah. you can do it with um, gymnastic style training yeah. which is kind of body weight but rings yeah. you can do it with 
uh, just endless. Yeah. You know, yoga, certain yeah. kind of yoga disciplines will help you. And um, I guess it's a case of picking what you enjoy and what you'll stick to. Exactly. But, you, you know, there's a love of movement perhaps for you, yeah. which is underpinning everything. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, at the moment, movement is like the buzzword in fitness. Movement and breathing. And again, I think the problem is we're in danger of how well do you need to move? You know, do you really need to be able to get your joints into all kind of crazy positions? Have you got pain in your body? No. Do you need to be able to get your leg around the back of your head then? Probably not. Um, you know, I think there's a danger of, you know, people thinking that movement is the be all and end all. Of course, if somebody's got pain in their body, we need to look at why, why is that pain? Is it because of emotional tension, which is causing them to move in a particular way? Is it because they're spending six hours a day sat in front of a computer or playing games? You know, what are the factors that are causing that? But, you know, my movement isn't the best in the world. I'm flexible enough to do what I want to be able to do and stay injury free. Do I need to be doing any more movement than that? Probably not. You know, I don't need to be doing lizard crawling on the floor in order to be able to do a decent fan dance time and a 48 kilo Turkish get up. I've got all the movement I need right there. So I do think that, again, you know, if people enjoy movement and that's how they want to get their kicks, then crack on and do that. But I just think that, you know, movement is is important, but it's definitely not the be-all and end-all in terms of helping people to become fitter and um, feel better in their bodies. It's movement for, really, yeah. like movement for a specific purpose rather yeah. than for the sake of movement. I mean, I, I, I kind of... I played around a couple of years ago with trying to do handstands and I couldn't do it. And yeah. so I became a little bit obsessed with why can't I do it? I want to be able to do it. Yeah. And then I got to a point where I realised it's literally, it's not going to help me do anything in my life yeah. better. Like I, <laughs> I couldn't think of one particular thing that it would really help me with, not even the discipline of training and like yeah. the daily habit. It just, it just didn't really have much carryover. And so I dropped it because it just felt pointless to me yeah, in my yeah. life. Who inspires you? So it could be anyone. It could be your next door neighbour. It could be someone's like you know someone you've met, or it could be you know I don't know Tony Robbins. Who yeah. who who is sort of three people in the world that inspire you and you always come back to? Uh, that's a difficult one because I don't really have many idols. My coach, my coach Julia, inspires me massively just because she lives with a level of freedom that. Um, you know, she walks the talk at the end of the day, and I'm I'm big into that. But um, you know, I get inspiration from everywhere, Ollie, and it's not necessarily one person. It can be a person who I've never seen before, who's completely unknown. You know, there's nobody who I particularly gravitate towards, and you know, I've read, you know, Dan John. I love Dan John. I like some of his books. You know, where he's given me some good knowledge. But then, so has Pavel. So has you know, Rob at the Commando Temple's given me loads of knowledge people within the industry I just I just I'm just a snippet picker and the stuff that resonates with me I will enjoy and I will take hold of and play around with the idea of that but um I think even though I say I've not got any idols it's just that I just get inspiration from everywhere and from everyone and um and so therefore my book is always open and um and that's why I think I struggle with having any particular idol because that person's living their life in that way I'm not that person I'm going to live my life in a different way. So why why would I want to try and emulate that or live like that person when I'm me? And I think that's the thing is why I don't I don't really do it is I live my life how I know best and I have people who guide me within that paradigm and that's all I really need. 
And there's this sort of slightly false idea which I, uh, does trigger me a little bit about um, the fact that you can go model successful people and do exactly what they do and yeah. possibly get the same success. And it's just a, it seems very flawed to me because I'm never going to become Elon Musk. Yeah. I think he's awesome. I think he's a genius. I'm really interested and fascinated by yeah. him. But I'm, I'm never going to work 100 hours a week and to the exclusion of my family and my yeah. health and everything else. And, you know, but um, so I think this, this idea of modeling people and kind of adopting their behaviors is perhaps a little bit of a fool's errand. And it takes us away perhaps from what our own individual definition of success is. And this is a huge thing for me and with all my clients and everyone I talk to is, I think more people need to get in touch with what their definition of success is yeah. and then try and live towards that. Yeah. So speaking of which, what is your definition of success? Uh, my definition definition of success is just to be able to have enough money to do what I want to be able to do when I want to do it, uh, to have the freedom to live the kind of life that I want to do and to have the people in it who are important to me. And if I've got those three things, then I'm living a successful life. You know, my chosen modality is in helping other people. I can't not help people. It's It's ingrained within me you know I love people and you know helping them to move forward in some way is is what I'm passionate about to me that's that is you know that's what success looks like um, it's just having the having the ability to live the kind of life that you want to live do what you want to do when you do want to do it and help a bunch of people on the way there and uh, and I think that for me is is uh, how I like to operate so I've recently seen you sharing something new um, on on Instagram in particular, something called Durable Human, and I think you've got a different account. What what is Durable Human? What's that about? Uh, Durable Human came about because I believe there's a a need uh, for people to be able to understand what it is just to be able to deal with life better themselves. So... You know, whether that's dealing with pain, dealing with restriction, um, dealing with a sense of lack of freedom, feeling weak, um, not feeling fit, lacking confidence. And I think the problem is in this society is we live in a quick fix society whereby we look for external solutions to internal problems. And Durable Human really is about me sharing how I live my life in terms of the practices that I engage in in order for me to be the most durable version of myself possible and that includes being able to run over mountains work long hours help people deal with my own pain unravel my own psyche how to calm myself down at the end of the day how to deal with stress how to live a life of healthy eating without being overly attached to food and it being an unnecessary area of restriction and control and so what i hope to do with durable human is just to share with others this idea of becoming more self-sufficient and taking ownership of our own fucking lives instead of constantly looking for external sources to dive in and help us and pull us out the hole when really we should be able to, as much as possible, learn the skills how to do that ourselves. And so I want to try and share with others how, you know, how I do that and how I've had other people to help me to teach me the skills in order for me to do that, given that, um, you know, the coaching I've had ultimately has helped to make me more self-sufficient. The book stops with me and the book stops with you and whoever else it is, is the book stops with them. And to start to understand that our li- our own lives are our, are our own creation and we can make our lives into whatever we want them to be. It's not something that happens to us. We can make our life happen for us. 
And it's kind of reawakening this uh, concept and idea of personal responsibility, which I think Completely. has been neglected in, yeah. in recent yeah. years and is super important because yeah. I, I, I'm very aligned with you there in the fact that you're kind of, you know, you're in control of your own reality and that sounds far-fetched, but just yeah. decisions, choices, habits, patterns yeah. equal a certain yeah. set of results. Yeah. And it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, no. but you can change that reality yeah. by changing the decisions, choices, habits, behaviours. Yeah. And also, Ollie, let's face it, you know, when shit happens in our life, we can look at that and go, why the hell would I create that for myself? But I have the understanding that whatever happens in my life is something that I've created. I've either drawn it in or I've made it myself. And so there's something there for me to learn from that. So if I've got pain in my body, it's not something that's happened to me as an accident. It's happened because I've engaged in a particular activity or way of thinking or a, a period of time of way of thinking that's led to a particular outcome whether it's tension or you know bad fortune or whatever is I believe the book stops with me and I have to look at those things and go what can this teach me and how can I move forward from it for a 45 year old man who's two stone overweight trapped in perhaps a job that they don't love tra trapped in the money game of kind of having to bring in money to sustain themselves and their family and maintain a certain lifestyle whose health is sort of suffering who doesn't really move much what would you suggest can you can you can you outline like a process or a philosophy of maybe three to five steps as to how that person could start to sort of improve their health uh, improve their fitness lose a bit of weight and you know perhaps make themselves more durable um i think the thing is ollie is just to keep it simple so you have to look and ask yourself, what is my biggest limitation right now? Maybe it's the fact that you're just drinking a thimble of water each day and your brain and body is dehydrated and that's one of the reasons why you're feeling like shit every morning when you wake up. So just as simple as making drinking water a priority. Second thing is how much sleep you're getting every night. I know if I'm getting six and a half hours sleep a night, that's generally not enough. I tend not to function at my optimal if I'm getting seven to eight hours a night, I know that I function better. So water and sleep are two priorities, two good habits to start with. Then look at getting outside and getting some movement done. Just go for a walk, get out in some green area or buy some water and um, and start just to you know disconnect from day-to-day -day life in terms of social media, all the pressures that are put upon you and just spend some time with yourself. Look at you know ways in which you can improve your health in terms of nutrition so if you know that you're eating takeaway four or five times a week maybe look at reducing that to four times a week instead of five or three times a week instead of four simple small sustainable changes that you can start off with and see regular small successes first because i think by gaining those small wins and seeing successes it reminds us that actually we can be successful and the more we do those things and see those small wins and write them down or whatever it is that you choose to do to be able to tangibly see that, then it creates a mindset more of being able to achieve. And when you start to see yourself achieving certain areas, then that just starts to grow. And potentially you've got the the expanse there to grow further and, um, and take greater ownership of your life. But it starts with the smallest things and then let them expand from there. The sort of positive feedback loop of making a small change. Yeah feeling different, seeing a result, and then yeah. that fueling the journey to kind of, um, you know, dive deeper. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the fundamental thing is, Ollie, is whatever you're doing is just be consistent. You know, chances are you might feel better in a week. It's probably going to be two to four. 
you've got to keep doing it. And then once you've identified that it's starting to work, you then have to keep doing it. And so it eventually becomes the thing that you do by default rather than the thing that you do because you've not been doing it and you've got to learn it all over again. I think this idea of consistency is particularly difficult for people nowadays because you mentioned the quick fix society yeah. uh, and also because there's a delay on results. Yeah. Whether it's money you want or whether it's uh, working on a relationship or whether it is training, losing weight, getting stronger. There's like, I call it the jet lag delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think people don't appreciate that. And I think that's why so many people hop and chop and change. Yeah. Because they start something, it doesn't bring them results kind of instantly. And yeah. then they, they feel that it doesn't work. And ultimately, I think, Ollie, it's because people just don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, we're trying to move away from pain at all times, and that doesn't necessarily mean physical pain. It can be the pain of not having something, or the pain of not having somebody, or the the pain of not having that thing that you think you need that's going to make you feel better. I think, um, you know, if we just get more into uh, being okay, being uncomfortable, and that's one of the things that the mountain taught me the most is that, you know, climbing a mountain is hard work. You're going to be uncomfortable for hours. If you get okay with doing that, that expands into your day-to-day life massively because you know that if you can just put up with a few hours of being bloody uncomfortable, then you can put up with a few hours of being uncomfortable in your day-to-day life as well. And you can come through the other side. And you can come through the other side, exactly. So, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, I've learned a lot, and um, I-, I think we could keep talking for a lot longer, but yeah, I know yeah. that we've, uh, we've, got to, we've got to wrap things up. So what I want to leave people with is, like, where can people find you? If someone was inspired by you, if someone wanted to reach out and ask for your advice, something that you've said maybe about your depression, maybe about your strength training, mace, fan dance, if they wanted to get in touch with you, where can people find you? Uh, easiest place is to go to my website, which is www.trainstrong.co.uk. And I'll link to this in the show notes. Yeah, or they can follow me on Instagram, trainstrongpt or durable.human. Email address info at trainstrong. Dot, uh, sorry, trainstrongpt.co.uk. Um, those are the best places to contact me. And what about if someone fancies coming in along to the Commando Temple and finding you there and playing around with some of the stuff you talked about? Yeah, if they go to www.bestronger.co.uk, that is the Commando Temple website, or if they type in Commando Temple, then that will come up in Deptford, and uh, I'm on there with my own bio and profile in addition to contact form on there as well. And is there anything you want to leave people with? Any message, any thought? Uh, anything you're working on that you'd like to you know kind of tell people about just try and keep stepping forward for yourselves in the smallest of ways because the smallest steps are the ones that take you up the mountain as you go and we've talked a lot about mountains today but it's a good metaphor to use is you just have to keep stepping forward in the smallest of steps possible Um, I'm heading back out to Argentina in January to have another crack at doing Aconcagua um, learning a lot from what I've done last time so it's a three week expedition so um, I'm going to be putting those small steps into practice by trying to get to the top of a very high altitude mountain again and uh, hopefully faring better than I did last time so uh, well I and I know everyone listening wishes you the best of luck with that and hopefully you don't have a, the same experience you had yes. before um, and hopefully we can also book in another kind of uh, time to sit down and chat and find out how you get on basically. yeah that'd be great Ollie thanks but, for having me Matt sure pleasure to speak to you likewise Ollie all the best